This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Be careful out there if you're driving on the roadways. Not the best driving conditions in many parts of the province, as you well know. So please be careful. Well... We've been hearing a lot in recent years about the downloading of services on municipalities already overburdened with the responsibility of how to provide essential services to residents with limited resources. Overall, communities are doing brilliantly, in large part because they have to, but it's tough. Now comes the added burden of dealing with the fallout when residents have trouble accessing health care. Well, next week, the town of Grand Falls, Windsor, is hosting what's being called a candidate's discussion on the future of health care in the region. A month or so ago, you may recall, Gander Mayor Percy Farwell issued a release calling for the return of obstetrical services at James Pate Memorial Hospital. We've seen municipal leaders in places like Bonavista and Whitburn speaking out about access to ER services at their local clinics, which have seen regular disruptions, and they're not the only ones. Not only are these life and death situations for for individuals, but they're also life and death scenarios for municipalities. How can a municipality, after all, continue to thrive and grow without reliable access to health care? Well, here to tell us is Director of Advocacy, I'm sorry, and Communications with Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, Dietra Walsh. Hello. Hello, Linda. Thanks for having me on the program uh, this afternoon. I'm really pleased to be here and to uh, speak with you and your listeners, I suppose, as it were. Yes, absolutely. We're so glad you could join us. Well, uh, as if municipalities were now weren't already dealing with enough, health care is arguably the most important issue because it affects us all. So why are municipalities so concerned? Well, and I, and I need to be clear to uh, Linda that um, I am certainly now, you had mentioned in the, in the onset that I am the Director of Advocacy and Communications with MNL, and that is indeed the truth. And I'm very well aware of the issues that, are, um, that our members are facing and municipalities are facing, and certainly we hear about that a lot. Um, I mean, most of the, the discussion I'll have here now, and, and to be clear to your listener, listeners, I'm not speaking on behalf of MNL. Um, my engagement with this discussion extends well beyond the municipal sector and I come to it as a sociologist because that's what my PhD and my research has been in has been on um, from a sociological perspective so again just a note to listeners um, that this is is not an MNL position I'm certainly happy to reflect on on some of these pieces and some of these questions you you asked um, but I mean what I've been talking about is is much larger than this this is about the crisis situation that we're in right now in healthcare and in other sectors. I mean, health and social care, but certainly, you know, uh, we have labor action um, today starting up um, in the education sector. There is a crisis everywhere, and we need to think about why this is happening. Um, and, and again, what happens when these kinds of things happen or these kinds of things occur and who has to pick up the pieces? And I think that's a lot of the spirit of certainly what I've been thinking about and, and also tweeting about if anybody's been on the Twitter um, about, you know, what are the impacts and who has to carry these loads? Um, so, yeah. 
So is this a, a post-pandemic phenomenon, perhaps? Because we've seen absolutely everything upended. There is nothing that we used to take for granted a mere three years ago that we can still believe to be true today. It's totally different. Well, I mean, yeah, I think the pandemic has, well, as we all know, it had, has, has had a huge impact on, on so many things. And I think it's enlightened us to a lot of the cracks in our systems. And, you know, not only are we dealing with a pandemic still, I mean, really, we're not out of this by any stretch of the imagination. We're also dealing with um, a significant and, and substantially different economic situation than, than we have been in in quite some time. I mean, probably only comparable, maybe, you know, the, you know, the late um, 2000s when we had an economic recession. But I would argue, like, this is going back to recession times in the 1980s. And so we've got this kind of culmination of things happening. We've got, um, you know, a pandemic time, which, you know, created a lot of strains on a lot of systems, and in particular, the healthcare system. System. We've got massive inflation, economic situations that are creating unsustainable lives for people, communities, organizations, and municipalities, and governments alike. I mean, it is an expensive time to do anything right now. Um, but some of these crises that we've been seeing, this is not coming out of the pandemic. And certainly when we talk about healthcare and the kinds of issues that prompted this discussion and even my reactions to it, this has been coming for a long time. This is like 30 40 years in the making, quite frankly. Yeah, because we've been living through a period, and I don't think we think of it in those terms, but we've been living through a period of relative stability. I would, I mean, yes, I would say on the surface, we've been living in a period of relative stability. But I would argue that if you talk to any of the uh, workers in the healthcare systems or in the education systems, there's been a lot of tumultuousness happening there, even well before the pandemic. And, and again, I mean, I, as a sociologist, I look to say, okay, well, why is this happening? You know, how can we explain this? Um, sort of what's happening in people's everyday lives from a structural point of view. And, you know, we, we have to look to new neoliberalism. And I, I, a couple of times that I have mentioned this this uh, this term on air, um, I also kind of uh, preface it by saying, you know, this is the moment when people start to groan and say, why, Lord, what is she talking about? But, you know, this is this shift away from uh, a social safety net that was in place, you know, um, kind of post-World War II, um, post-Depression. Um, that really saw governments invest a lot in health and social care and other things, including education, uh, whereby they saw the value in that. They saw the need for those types of things and the need for stability in that. And that's been on a constant erosion trajectory um, since the late 1970s when, you know, this kind of austerity measures under neoliberalism came in. And if any of your, I mean, this is a political program, so your listeners are politically savvy. And if you think back to the times of the late 1970s and early 1980s, we had, you know, Reaganism, trickle-down economics, uh, Margaret Thatcher, the sort of, um, the trifecta of sort of austerity. I mean, that was really the beginning that marked, you know, pulling back from this kind of state-sponsored, centrally run, um, publicly funded um, systems that we had. And, um, and that's been, you know, that erosion has kind of been happening over time right up until now. And, I, you know, to your point about the pandemic, the pandemic was such a crisis that impacted the healthcare system that suddenly it seemed all of these 
you know, this evolution and these pieces were exposed, like all of the cracks, not to mention the fact that we've had, you know, a longstanding move of labor shortages. Like the labor shortages we see in the healthcare system now are nothing new. I mean, uh, Roy Romano was writing in the late 2000s or early 2000s and released the Romano report and identified that we were going to have labor shortages and problems in the healthcare sector if we didn't start addressing them. So, you know, this has sort of exposed everything. And I think what this does for us and what we're seeing now is opening up a space for conversation and a space for awareness and a space to kind of step back and say, okay, where do we go from here? And what can we do to benefit the people in our communities, the workers um, who are in these systems? And of course, you know, the on the ground um, service providers, which also include municipalities. Our guest today on On Target is Dieter Walsh. She's a sociologist, but she also happens to work for uh, municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador. We're uh, talking about what's going on. Uh, We'll be back right after this. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. And we're back. Just a few quick notes. Um, Indian Head Co-op in Stephenville is closed for the day due to a fuel leak in the parking lot. And uh, there is a power outage currently in the center city area involving Howley Estates, Hillview Terrace, that whole area, Ennis Avenue to Tiffany Lane. And that's due to a a vehicle striking a pole there, about 238 customers affected, including the Sobeys in Howley Estates. So if you're heading up there, you might want to wonder why it's closed. That's the reason why so that they hope will be fixed very soon the crews are on site our guest today on on target is sociologist Dieter Walsh who's been giving some thought to um, some of the situations that we're finding ourselves in now uh, after three years of pandemic phase and how much things have changed and you mentioned that this has been uh, um, coming our way for quite some time and you mentioned the term neoliberalism so explain that to us for you, for us. Okay, absolutely. It's uh, it's right now one of my favorite topics. So, and I'm so happy. You know, the community is engaged in this conversation, and I certainly hope your listeners are too, because it's important. Um, as I was noting before the break, uh, neoliberalism is this sort of approach away from state-centered, state-supported um, health and social care. Um, programming policy, um, and and it really means also a downloading of these kind of services and the responsibility of these services to, in one instance, community and community-based organizations, and I can talk a little bit about that in a second, but it also features um, privatization, the privatization of services. And um, and through that, of course, one of the outcomes of that is, um, you know, profits, profitization, which happens when, you know, um, the private sector takes over some of these things. I mean, things begin, uh, become run as businesses. So, yes, so neoliberalism does that. It moves away from the welfare state, um, public infrastructure, publicly funded pieces directly and and moves it away from government in particular ways, both through downloading and through privatization. So what we can see in healthcare for sure, and indeed, you know, in the conversations around the uh, paramedic strike is we can see privatization having an impact there, even within their spheres. And also, you know, we see a a lot of uh, downloading of responsibilities to community-based organizations, um, which is not a bad thing. And I I don't want to suggest that that is, because certainly 
importantly, you know, the Health Accord points out the importance of community-based organizations, community-based organizations themselves who are, you know, working um, working directly with their clients. They know what is best and what's needed. What the problem is in the neoliberal world is that it puts constraints on how community-based organizations can access funding. It creates, you know, heavy administrative burdens. Um, and also it kind of makes them compete for these funds uh, when really what they're delivering are core and essential services in many ways to people. Um, so making this sort of a competitive environment and putting these constraints around organizations organizations who are often run by volunteer boards um, creates more problems in the system. And, and, you know, that's what we see as well. Well, I've heard some people say, uh, and the, just as a casual observation, as opposed to anything that they've spent time, you know, actually researching or thinking about, but I've heard some people say, you know, uh, what we're seeing in healthcare is deliberate. Uh, some people feel as though uh, there is an attempt to sort of uh, let it founder, and then uh, that will justify a new way to uh, provide the services that we've become accustomed to. Yeah. Well, you know, and if, if you think about, I mentioned uh, Reaganomics and trickle-down economics, which is, again, part and parcel of the neoliberal approach, um, you know, that's always based upon this idea that if we leave it to the market, it will adjust itself or take care of itself. Um, if it's deliberate from the point of view in your line of questioning whereby, you know, governments are trying to, uh, or, I mean, just let it flow until until it reaches such a crisis level that there has to be some sort of a collective response, I mean, I'm not sure, I can't comment on that. But certainly I think that this is a, an intentional um, type of activity that, you know, is not the outcomes are not surprising if we, again, look at it from this neoliberalist perspective. Um, but, you know, now we need to say, well, actually, OK, what do we need to do? Because, you know, the way in which this is going is not okay. Like this, what we're seeing here now, um, people suffering, um, people concerned about, you know, who's going to show up if they have an emergency, if the emergency room is open, you know, again, many people without family doctors. uh, This is a crisis of epic proportions. Have we seen this kind of thing in other jurisdictions outside of Canada? Um. So, I mean, as you can imagine, um, health systems run quite differently in various different places. But certainly if you look to kind of um, similarly structured um, state-based health delivery, uh, the U.K. is in a crisis now for the same reasons. Um, You know, again, the U.S. is a very different example, so it's hard to compare to them because they have a very different system set up. I think probably the most valuable one to look at certainly is the U.K. and kind of their their experiences, which, again, points to some of the same outcomes, you know, poor health health outcomes, labor shortages, um, and and very much a crisis. And if you look across, you know, our country, um, you can see the same things happening in jurisdictions. Now, of course, your listeners will probably know that um, health care is funded federally, but delivered provincially and territorially. So the provinces and territories have the jurisdiction over how things are run, but the Canada Health Act really lays out the foundations for that. And, you know, that that whole act and that health care policy, it's really about protecting, promoting, and restoring the physical and mental health well-being of residents of Canada, and to facilitate reasonable access to health services without financial or other barriers. And of course, I am reading off a screen here now just to share that, but I wanted to get it right 
state. Um, so we can see similar things happening across our country for sure as well. So uh, we have this, and, and the conversation is timely, of course, because we have this meeting between the premiers and the PM. Uh, yes. Gosh, is it late this week or early next? Ex- early next, I believe. And they're going to be talking about a, a new deal to try and uh, work out uh, health transfers to the provinces. But is it all about money or, or is it about something else as well? Well, interesting you should mention that, and it is on February 7th, and there's been, you know, quite a bit of news coverage on that for sure as well, as you know. Um, you know, I think the, the Prime Minister said uh, at, a, at an event in Hamilton, um, and I'll quote this because why not? I have it highlighted and I want to share it with you. Let's be clear, providing money is certainly part of the solution. But funding alone won't solve the issues we're seeing. Canadians need to see improvements, better results and outcomes. So to your question, this is not just about funding. Now, I mean, even as the health accord shows, we need new investment. We definitely need new investment in health care. And if you look, I mean, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador has its Engage NL budget consultation open now for commentary. And I would invite any of your listeners to go to that website and be part of that conversation because it's certainly an important part of the democratic process. Um, but what they're showing us in the tool that they have is, you know, there's a defined budget. There isn't any much room to move. And if you change things around, you're going to have to take from something else. Already, the health and and social care system is the biggest portion of the provincial budget. It's up at around 40 percent. So if we're going to deliver on what the health accord recommends, which is an excellent piece of of work that has been done, we will need new money. Um, But new money is not all of it. Uh, Again, to answer your question, it's about how we do things. And I think that's what's in this nuancing um, with, you know, within within these discussions. And now, Linda, I have to be honest, I'm not privy to any of these discussions. I have no idea what's going to happen next week. And certainly these are pieces between um, the, the first ministers and the prime minister. But, you know, the federal government has has priority areas uh, on surgery backlogs, primary care, expanding mental health services, fixing long-term care homes, which is a critical point, and modernizing the system. But I think they want to see, and judging from the the coverage on this, they want to see, and, and the prime minister certainly wants to see, the way in which we do things changing. And I think that opens up a lot of possibility for positive change. And Newfoundland and Labrador arguably is uh, a couple of steps ahead of some other provinces because we have the health accord and we have this plan uh, laid out. Um, but it's it's causing a lot of um, concern amongst um, municipal leaders in particular. We've heard from the mayors of uh, Grand Falls, Windsor and um, Gander. In fact, they have a big discussion coming up uh, in Grand Falls, Windsor about the future of health care in the region. They're going to have what they call a frank discussion about it. Uh, So, you know, how we do it uh, will make all the difference. And um, is there, uh, you know, are the concerns justified, in other words? Well, I mean, in in Newfoundland Labrador, we have to look at how our services have been structured and delivered and where um, those service delivery points are. You know, we have a historic structure whereby, you know, there are uh, clinics and hospitals in various locations delivering certain kinds of services, um, sometimes similar services um, across communities. Um, So, you know, I I can understand why um, folks would be um, concerned about any potential service loss 
But we also have to recognize that people have been living in a service deficit for quite some time, too. Um, so, you know, managing sort of the reality of a service deficit, and by that I mean also, you know, in the past year or so, like, you know, constant emergency room closures, um, you know, puts us in a heightened sense of awareness. Um, you know, and there are some key essential services. I mean, we've heard a lot about maternity care as a big piece and, and women having to travel, like, extensive di- distances to access obstetrics, um, or, you know, or indeed not even having those services. So I think those conversations are pretty important. Uh, I think it's going to come down to, and again, I'm not speaking on behalf of any municipal leader and not on behalf of health accord folks. I think it is about distribution and how we do that fairly and equitably based on needs. You mentioned that this is a long time coming, and I want to ask you about the role of demographics uh, when we come back after the break. Our guest today is sociologist Dietra Walsh. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Guest today on On Target is sociologist Dietra Walsh. And uh, Dietra, just before the break, uh, I was going to ask you about the um, role of demographics. Uh, because when you think about our population, um, I have one child. My mother had three. My grandmother had six. My great-grandmother had 12. Uh, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure out that we're not really replacing ourselves anymore. Um, and some arguments are that um, even immigration doesn't really address that either. So are are our demographics coming against us when it comes to how we provide these services in future? Oh, most definitely. I mean, you know, it's it's no surprise to anyone, and certainly we hear this discourse all the time. We have, you know, one of the fastest aging populations likely in the country. Uh, we have a significant aging population. Um, historically, we have experienced, and I mean, certainly this is my area from my PhD, uh, massive amounts of outmigration um, and, and not replacing in that way. And many families know that story. Um, so we're challenged not only in terms of, you know, the kinds of, in the, in the context of the healthcare uh, services conversation, the kinds of healthcare service that we, that our population needs right now and needs going into the future. And to your point, you know, this becomes a, a labor discussion. How do we, um, how do we ensure that we have workers in good working conditions across our province um, to deliver the kind of services we need. So absolutely, demographics are a critical piece of understanding this puzzle as well. Um, What about our expectations? Should our expectations remain what they have been in the past, or do we really need to reimagine all of that? I find the I find the, the term the use of the term reimagining I think that's interesting as well and I think it's how do we mobilize even that term not to sound too much like an academic and everybody again might groan but um, you know we we have to our, what are our expectations. Um, I think our expectations go back to the, the core of the, the Federal Health Care Act and the stuff I, I, I cited earlier, you know, um, equitable access, um, that there won't be a barrier financially and that services will be available. I mean, if those, those are the expectations that are set out in the legislation and the legislation that is put in place by governments to protect people. Um, so I think we have to start from that piece first. Um, and then we have to say, what is reasonable? Um, you know, how do we kind of meet 
what is the, 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 what's laid out in this legislation, and then also recognizing the challenge of our our pop, our demographics, as we talked about, and also our geography, which again, you know, the health accord speaks to. Um, so I'm not sure if, if thinking about you know individuals' expectations are are the way in which I would go forward thinking about this. I would say, okay, what do we actually need to do to protect people um, and make sure that they have access to the services they need in ways that is not create is not detrimental to their health, further detrimental to their health, and nor does it create risk. And that's something you know we see a lot of risk happening right now: risk for individual health outcomes, risk for workers, and and to our early kind of of points of the conversation, risks of volunteers who are a part of this process as well. And this will likely be hammered out in that conference room on February 7th. But do we have, and you you touched on this earlier, that we do we have two things happening here? The federal government provides the funding, but it's the provinces that provide the services. And each province has its own needs. There are some commonalities there, but each province does things differently and, and um, provides services in different ways. Um, <laughs> Will we always have this uh, so-called butting of heads, I suppose, if the federal government is sending the money and saying, all right, do with this what you will, and the provinces are saying for different reasons, hey, this is not going to work for us? Um, I think all of these things are always going to create headbutting, you know, to use your terminology. I think there's always going to be disagreement and um, certainly political disagreement, um, sometimes policy disagreement and policy shifts. And again, that depends on the context where, you know, services are being delivered. Um, But ultimately, I think the overarching goal here is, you know, um, how how we, we need to do better by the people who are in our communities and in fact paying taxes for these services. What, what is happening right now is simply not good enough. So we have to put the jurisdictional um, disputes aside, in my opinion, and focus on what actually needs the outcome needs to be here. Um, and certainly the outcome is very, very different from the reality we're in right now. And I think that needs to be the focus. So again, jurisdictional disputes aside, political partisanship aside, that doesn't matter. We're talking about people's lives and their health and workers and communities. Um, so we need to sort of shove all that aside and, and get on with the business of ensuring that, you know, people are safe. You mentioned earlier uh, the erosion, and that's my word. You didn't use that word, but the erosion of the the social safety net that we've become accustomed to here in Canada. And uh, you're talking about primarily health care, but uh, uh, other things like child care, for instance, which is a relatively new concept in the last generation or so, if you know what I'm saying. Um, mm-hmm. And these are all the factors that come into play when uh, somebody is saying, you know what, uh, I think I'm going to start a family, but if I don't have anywhere that I can continue working and I know my child is going to be safe and happy and well cared for while I'm working to provide for my family, um, then I might postpone childbearing for a little while. I might postpone having that second, third, fourth, 20th child, whatever the case may be. Um, And if I can't get access to health care, well, why would I stay in this community? Because I'm nearing an age when I'm going to probably uh, need greater access to health care. So, um, I mean, explore that for us, if you will. 
Absolutely. And I think you make you make a great point. I mean, child care and there's been a lot of policy shifts and, and universal child care has certainly been part of of advocacy work across the country for decades now. And we're seeing some movement on that for a national child care strategy and, and national funding for child care. Um, you know, we do need to have these things in place um, for families who want to, um, you know, choose a place to live, ensure that they can do that um, happily and healthily. Uh, I mean, you know, municipalities are part of that conversation as well. You know, they provide many of the recreational facilities in our communities where children can play and learn and all of those things. Uh, so that's pretty important. Um, I would also argue that, you know, maternal health care is a big piece of this. You know, if you can't have access, and I, I mentioned it earlier, if, if you're struggling with access to maternal health care, um, you know, that may impact your decision to even, you know, um, try to have a child or, or reproductive care, because certainly, you know, there's been a big discussion in this province about that access to reproductive um, health care um, for families who want that. So, yeah, I think it's a big piece of this puzzle um, and ensuring if a that we can have children safely um, and that there are um, spaces for the care of those children so that we can thrive and indeed, you know, have employment ourselves, you know, to take it from a labor perspective. What about the role of the nonprofit sector? And I know that the nonprofit sector is doing extraordinary work. We, it touches all of our lives. Uh, the amount of work that gets done by uh, volunteers and people who are providing the services to us um, for a variety of reasons, usually people who are passionately uh, involved in yeah. what they do. Um, but where, you know, has government downloaded a lot of what it should be providing to the nonprofit sector? How has that shifted? Yeah, and I think, you know, and we did, I did allude to some of this earlier, you know, certainly this is part of what we see here. There is a downloading of responsibilities to communities and to nonprofits. And, and again, I'm going to preface this by saying, you know, in many cases, um, our community-based organizations do want some of those responsibilities um, because they know what the needs are in their communities and with the populations they serve. And you're absolutely right. There are tremendous organizations in our province across the country doing fabulous work on very, very, very little resources um, with small staff um, and, again, competing for funding. Uh, and there's another side of this that matters. You know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, nonprofit organizations require legislatively um, they need to be registered. They need to have a board of governors, um, or, sorry, a board of directors. So, you know, there's a volunteer dimension to running these organizations that's essential as well. And, you know, if we look to uh, across our province, you know, we are struggling with volunteerism. Um, a lot of people volunteer for many of the same things. There's certainly burnout happening there, but we do need volunteers to ensure good uh, board governance so that nonprofits can can continue to operate legally. So there's a whole bunch of dimensions to this. It's not just the work, the operations of nonprofits, but it's how they're governed as well and making sure we take care of all of the people and the pieces um, that are part of this uh, uh, that that are part of this system, you know?
Um, and will that continue to be able to work in that way? Um, I was speaking with the mayor of um, Campbellton not too long ago, Maisie Clark, and she said, you know, we've got lots of capable people in our community, but um, the days of volunteering are over, as she put it, and she, she lamented that fact. So um, what needs to change in order for us to get people to step up? It has Does it have to be a paid position, or, or how can we get people to fill some of those gaps? Well, I think remuneration is always an important part of, of the puzzle. And, and yes, people's lives are busy and, um, um, you know, having a stipend of some sort may be a piece of encouragement. Um, I think that, um, you know, by and large, I mean, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are among the highest givers from the voluntary perspective in the country and certainly contributors. Um, the people living here are contributing in many different ways, their time and energy. You know, it may take a, a different tack to how we how we approach volunteerism and how we support volunteers to do the work that they're doing. Um, you know, and uh, I have huge respect for Mayor Clark. She's been in that role for quite some time and knows these things quite intimately. Um, but you know, you know, let's talk about volunteer firefighters for for a moment um, because they're part of this system um, response. I mean, certainly right now um, in all of these crisis and with the the paramedic strike what we're seeing is that a lot of the burden is falling to them and medical emergency response is outside of their scope practice uh, they shouldn't be, you know, they shouldn't have to. And, and yet they're also volunteers. They're not, volunteers are not trained to do that. So if we put volunteers, whether it's, you know, in nonprofits or it's volunteer firefighters, in situations um, that stretches them too far, um, you know, they're not going to want to volunteer anymore because it's too much of a risk for them. Uh, it's too much of a burden. Uh, and, you know, recruitment will continue to be a challenge. And I think, you know, perhaps that's another piece of what we're seeing. Why would people want to volunteer if the systems are so broken and there just doesn't seem to be a resolution in sight? And it's, it's kind of sad. I suppose it's the way of the world. But uh, is it a, a symptom of the modern world clashing with those traditional volunteering uh, tendencies, if you will, when you know that you, you could be liable? Well, I mean, that's a very good point. Um, but, you know, under good board governance and, and good, you know, good acknowledgement and, and sound governance practices and good, strong, uh, you know, bookkeeping and, and, you know, then your fiduciary responsibilities are covered. Um, so the liability risk then is not so much. But, you know, the board governance piece is pretty important. So I think getting everybody in on that conversation is as important as anything else. I'm not sure if it's so much a, a product of the modern world, but, you know, another piece of, of work that I have uh, been involved in um, is uh, rotational workers. I think one of the statistics, two in five families have a rotational worker um, in this province, meaning that, you know, one of the partners is out of the province for quite some time. So when you've got a lot of, you know, families whereby one person could be working full time, there might be children, and then you've got a partner who's working away for anywhere from four to eight weeks, sometimes six months, uh, you know, that challenges um, people's ability to volunteer and commit in, in, in big ways as well. So I think that's an important piece of our puzzle, uh, if, if I may. Our guest today on On Target is sociologist Dieter Walsh. We'll be back right after this. 
Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Our guest today is sociologist Dietra Walsh. And Dietra, uh, just to circle back uh, towards the end of our conversation now, but you, off the top, you mentioned neoliberals, neoliberalism and this move away from some of the basic tenets that we um, have become accustomed to here in Canada. But uh, what are the solutions? Is the horse out of the barn here? Is this about getting back to basics or, or changing everything we once knew? Ah, the, the, the most important question, what do we do about this? Yeah, I think, um, well, I think we have a, a, a situation that we can learn from and that we can actually make positive change. I mean, I do believe that. I think we need political will and I think we need significant leadership. We need to work collectively. We need to engage. I mean, I mentioned to your listeners the importance of engaging in, in the budget planning process and, and, you know, putting their reflections in. I'm sure many people have written to their MHAs about the challenges they see in healthcare, And I think that that kind of work needs to continue. We need to document, engage and be part of the process. Um, I mentioned that, you know, as we talked about the meeting next week with the prime minister and, you know, the results of the health accord, there needs to be new investment. There absolutely needs to be new investment um, because we can't keep going like we are. Um, Another piece that I've talked a lot about as an educator is the importance of training. Um, training healthcare professionals and really working within our education system to recruit students who are interested in health professions and who may need a, a little bit of extra support. Um, but certainly, the message to them can't be that you know healthcare is difficult to get into and it's too competitive or you don't belong here or anything like that. We have to train our kids up and get them ready for the professions that are so needed right now. Um, I mean, I'll, I will mention as well, you know, we, we have the health accord as, as a piece um, that we're working from, but also, you know, there is, it, it, there was a, a piece on engage and L also to, to engage on the social and economic well-being plan. And so that, that happened before Christmas. Um, I certainly hope people did engage in that conversation as well. And there's a whole bunch of tenants in, you know, that uh, proposed planning process that looks at pieces around poverty, poverty, income support, and the role of community and community-based organizations. And so I think we need to keep an eye on what's happening there and be very clear that, you know, while communities and, you know, you know to, to talk off the top, municipalities are part of um, our whole system here and community-based organizations. Um, they had to have the core stable funding, um, and, and they shouldn't be competing for core funding or competing on an annual basis for funding or putting themselves in precarious situations in order to get Um, you know, to do the work that they need to do. And nor should they be expected to do all of this work in community to help, you know, dimensions of health and social care without additional resources. So if we are going to say, yes, community should deliver, or yes, uh, municipalities should deliver, or yes, volunteers should deliver, we need to make sure there's an infusion of resources to make that possible because, you know, neither community-based organizations, um, you know, non Nonprofits, municipalities, you name it, they can't do more with less at this stage, right? You mentioned political will, and it seems to me that the, the political landscape is so very different now than it was even 30 years ago. Um, and uh, it seems that that 
spectrum is growing farther and farther apart, if you know what I mean. We've got, um, you know, the, the, the pendulum swinging farther left and farther right than it ever has before, arguably. Um, so how do you keep maintain, I suppose, a certain level of services when, depending on uh, whatever factors are happening out there within the electorate, uh, we could see these real big swings and changes in our political landscape? Yeah, and and that's, I mean, that's exactly the problem with politics. And, you know, we're in a cycle of, you know, up to four years with a particular government. But the strength comes from, in my opinion, uh, policy within bureaucracy and legislation um, and legislation over time. So we have to look at the kind of the pieces of legislation that we have, push for the changes that we need and ensure that those that legislation is working in the best interest of the public and holds true over despite whoever's in power. Right. I mean, that's why legislation exists. And so, you know, there's always going to be a dimension of politics that kind of interplay with anything that's happening. Um, We need to be, you know, there's an important piece of the democratic process in that. But as I say, there are these tools um, within the structure of government that enable us to have longevity over time. We just have to ensure that those are meeting the needs of the people and those policies are actually meeting the needs of the people. And, I, you know, I mean, there's some fabulous bureaucrats working over in the Confederation building. I mean, I work with them. I know them. They are doing great work. We just got to make sure that that work continues over time, despite who's in power. Dietro, it's been an interesting conversation. We only have about two minutes left. Any final thoughts? Well, Linda, I really appreciate the opportunity to have a, a large chat on this, and I really, I really thank you for your questions. You know, I, I think this is a time for anybody out there. There has never been a more important time to engage in these conversations, to engage with the conversations with government, and to demand different, and to demand change. That's what we need to do. That's our right as citizens in this province. Um, as I say, we're taxpayers, and I think we need to all work together on all levels of government with all the community groups um, to really envision where we need to go. And again, like I said, ensure that people aren't put in situations of risk and that people are protected in their communities. It affects us all uh, for certain, and um, uh, vote. <laughs> Voting is very important too, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, voting and, you know, in our last election, certainly the the voter turnout was was not as high as it could be. Um, Voter turnout is critical, but there are other mechanisms other than voting. And so, again, engaging, we have these processes to engage in. We have mechanisms to work with our local representatives. Um, There are all kinds of ways to engage um, respectfully and to be part of the conversation. And I think, you know, we have a fabulously clever province of people here we can do great things we just have to get there and make sure we're on the same page uh, to what we all need phd and sociologist Dietrich walsh uh, really appreciate your time this afternoon thanks very much and likewise thank you linda have a great afternoon and we'll be back tomorrow stay tuned for that thanks for listening everyone